But in fact, this is a class society, and, and you could start a history of the United States with that sentence, the history of the United States is a history of class struggle. And it would be absolutely accurate. But can you imagine somebody writing, a, let's say, a textbook on American history for our very vulnerable students and starting off talking about our history being a history of class struggle? Can you imagine any major publisher publishing a book like that with that first sentence? Would it take very long for the publisher to go through that manuscript before rejecting it? And yet, it is an absolutely true statement. That's Howard Zinn, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Howard Zinn on a people's history of the United States, part two of a special two-part program celebrating the Zinn centenary. Celebrating the Zinn Centenary. You want to read a real history book? Matt Damon asks Robin Williams in the movie Goodwill Hunting. Read Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. That book will knock you on your ass. Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States has sold more than two million copies, and it keeps on selling. His close friend, Noam Chomsky, said, the book changed the consciousness of a generation. Zinn's history from below was to foreground, as he said, the countless small actions of unknown people. It was a sharp departure from the traditional focus on great men, presidents, generals, leaders, etc. His unorthodox approach presented the past stripped of its myths and propaganda. Howard Zinn, professor emeritus at Boston University, was perhaps this country's premier radical historian. He was born in Brooklyn in 1922. His parents, poor immigrants, were constantly moving to stay, as he once told me, one step ahead of the landlord. After high school, he went to work in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. During World War II, he saw combat duty as an Air Force bombardier. After the war, he went to Columbia University on the GI Bill. He was an active figure in the civil rights movement. He was among the first to oppose U.S. aggression in Indochina. A principled opponent of imperialism and militarism, he was an advocate of nonviolent civil disobedience. He spoke and marched against the U.S. wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Always ready to lend a hand, he believed in and practiced solidarity. Witty, erudite, generous, and loved by many the world over, Howard Zinn, friend and teacher, passed away in 2010. This archival program was recorded at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. And now... Howard Zinn. As you know, the Founding Fathers were not a multicultural group. Uh, no women, no Native Americans, no blacks, and virtually no poor people. It was a 55, 53 maybe, 53 and a half rich white man who, uh, as Charles Beard put it rightly, despite all the criticism he took for saying this, uh, reflected the interests of the propertied classes 
a strong central government was set up to protect the interests of the slave owners and the interests of the merchants and the interests of the bondholders, a country that will be, it would be able to move westward and, and protect the people who moved westward, who expanded into Indian lands, a government that would be able to send an army out into the Indian lands and get rid of the Indians and clear the way for white people to take over that land. Next time you hear somebody say, we mustn't have big government, this country was founded on the idea of big government. The slave owners needed big government, the manufacturers needed big government, the bondholders needed big government, the expanders needed big government. They all wanted desperately to have big government. And the rich and elite in this country have always wanted big government. Only recently, relatively recently in this century, uh, have they worried about what big government may do. Because big government, for most of our history, has been big government on behalf of the wealthy interests. We've had a welfare state in this country for a very long time, but most of the welfare was given to powerful and rich corporations. It wasn't called welfare, you see. And the railroads in the 1850s got something like 20 million acres of land free from the states. During the Civil War, the railroads got something like 100 million acres of land free from the federal government. 100 million acres free? You try to get an acre of land. One, just tell the government you want just a little bit of land. One acre. They did it for the Union Pacific. They can do it for me, you know. This was welfare on an enormous scale. Subsidies to the merchant marine, subsidies to the manufacturers by increasing the higher tariffs, which are, of course, subsidies to the manufacturers and higher prices for the consumer. In 1931, Charles Beard, that same rascal who wrote about an economic interpretation of the Constitution, wrote an article called in 31, remember, the midst of the Depression, and there's an argument about should the government do anything to help the poor, should we leave it to private charities? He, he wrote an article called The Myth of Rugged Individualism because all the people were saying, no, uh, we mustn't help all these people who, who don't have jobs anymore and who can't feed their families. Uh, in this country, we have a, a tradition. People have always made it on their own. And what Beard was, was asking was, did Rockefeller really make it on his own? Did Vanderbilt, did Harriman, did they really make it on their, on their own? Did Carnegie and the steel industry really, did they make it on their own? And he listed in this, in this article all the subsidies and all the grants that had been given by the federal government to the great corporations. The history of legislation in this country is a history of class legislation. Legislation is rarely talked about in class terms. It's talked about as if all the laws that are passed apply equally to everybody. Like they will say, taxes are raised, taxes are lowered. Do you want a tax hike or do you want taxes lowered? Well, it's kind of a meaningless question unless you ask, whose taxes? Taxes where? Taxes at what level? But the idea is to embrace us all in one great family, as if the measures that are passed by Congress apply equally to all of us, 
but of course they don't. We've had class legislation in this country ever since the very first Congress, ever, first, ever since Hamilton's economic program was passed by the very first Congress, and the first legislation they passed was tariffs to the manufacturers, a banking partnership between the government and, and the government helping out private banking interests, a payoff to the, to the speculators and bondholders, and an army ready to go out and taxes on the poor, and an army ready to go out and collect those taxes if they refuse to pay it, as happened very shortly in the 1794 in the Whiskey Rebellion in Pennsylvania. Class legislation in a very straight line from the Hamilton Economic Program right up through the budget bill now being debated in Congress, right up through the oil depletion allowances of our time, right up to the enormous subsidies to the aircraft industry, which would have gone into bankruptcy after World War II if the United States government had not given enormously lucrative contracts to the aircraft industry and, and kept them alive. You, know, you go to the federal government when you're short of funds and ask them to keep you alive with little subsidy. So history, history can illuminate a lot of the issues that are presented to us today. And seeing history in class terms, I think, is a much clearer and more honest way of taking a look at our society than by pretending, you know, as it pretends in the first words of the Constitution, we the people of the United States, as if everybody established the Constitution of the United States, and as if the Constitution was established for everyone. So I had a point of view about class. And I noticed that in my courses, the development of the United States as a great economic power was presented in, in such a way as to inspire us all. And I remember being, feeling rather triumphant when they gave the figures on how many steel ingots were produced and how many miles of railroad track were laid and how the Union Pacific met the Central Pacific and we finally had a transcontinental railroad. It was all a glorious and heroic achievement, and, and yes, I was part of it. <laughs> the Union Pacific and me. <laughs> and it was only after I got out of school, after I got out of graduate school, after I got out of the, after I'd finished the, my degrees and the PhD that I began to learn something about American history. But isn't that what happens? You really learn after you get out of school. You really, sorry. Because <laughs> then you read what you want to read. <laughs> and so I, re I, I read labor history. I read the history of labor struggles in this country, which in my history courses, what did I get? Did, I, did they tell me about the great railroad strikes of 1877? Did they tell me about the Haymarket Affair of 1886 and the execution of the anarchists in Chicago? which might have made me really think about justice in this country, just as it made Emma Goldman think about justice when she was a, just a teenager in Rochester, New York, and she heard about the execution of the, of the anarchists in the, in the Haymarket Affair in Chicago, uh, and it, it galvanized her. She was never the same again. Uh, 
I remember that, yes, there was in the history book something about the Pullman strike. There's always something about the Pullman strike. There's, there's always something about Eugene Debs. When you have a little bit about Eugene Debs, and that takes care of socialism, <laughs> you say. Uh, you have the Pullman strike, that takes care of, of, of the labor movement. Uh, but I didn't learn anything in any of these classes about the Lawrence Textile Strike of 1912, a, a magnificent dramatic episode in American history. Or about the Colorado Coal Strike of 1913-1914 and the Ludlow Massacre. I had to read about that on my own. I had to listen to a song by Woody Guthrie called The Ludlow Massacre, which led me which led me to, to wonder what was that about and led me to look into that and then ask myself, how come none of this was told to me? How come the name Mother Jones never appeared in any of my history books or any of my courses? How come Emma Goldman never appeared in any of my... None of this. So I wanted to, I wanted to teach and write about that which I thought had been neglected. And I began to think there was a reason for neglecting that, Again, not, not, not a reason that seven people gathered in a room to plan, but a reason that comes out of the normal workings of society, of an economic system and a social system and a political system in which power and wealth are concentrated uh, at the top. I wanted to write about history from that other point of view. I wanted to write about war from another point of view. After I left the shipyard, or, or I, I left the shipyard in order to enlist in the Air Force, I became a bombardier in the United States Air Force, and I don't know if I should tell you what war I was in, but uh, I should, maybe I will, because otherwise you might think it was the Spanish-American War. <laughs> but uh, but I, I, was a, I was a bombardier in the Air Force in World War II, and I, I enlisted with all the enthusiasm that so many people went into World War II because, as you know, that was the good war. Although if you, re, if you look at Studs Terkel's oral history of the good war, you'll notice it has quotation marks around it. The good war in quotation marks. Because so many of the people he interviewed who were in that good war came out of that war not as certain as they had gone into it not because they had developed a, an affinity for fascism, because that was what gave us the moral purpose, that was what gave us the enthusiasm, a war against fascism. And the assumption was, a very dangerous assumption, that if the enemy is evil, then your side must be good. You see. Uh, and the enemy was evil. Yeah, I mean, the, the enemy was unmistakably evil, but where we made the mistake was in thinking that therefore our side was good. And if the enemy commits atrocities, therefore, well, certainly our side wouldn't do that. We didn't match the Holocaust. I mean, that's a unique event in, in World War II. But in our indiscriminate bombing of civilian populations, deliberate bombing of civilian populations, of working-class populations in German cities and Japanese cities, culminating with the Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, we committed atrocities. What happened in World War II was what happens in war generally, and that is whatever the initiating cause and however clear the moral uh, reason is for the war in which some people look better, so one side looks better than the others, by the time a war ends, both sides have been engaged in evil. And so I came to the conclusion that... Uh, 
I, I simply came to the conclusion that war uh, was an unacceptable way of solving whatever problems there were in the world, that there would be problems of tyranny, there would be problems of injustice, there would be problems of nations crossing frontiers, and, uh, and that injustice in the world and tyrannies in the world should not be tolerated and should be fought and should be resisted. But the one thing that must not be used to solve that problem is war. Because war is, at, as the, is inevitably the indiscriminate killing of large numbers of people, and that fact overwhelms whatever moral cause is somewhere buried uh, in the history of that war. And so I, I, I wasn't going to, I obviously was not going to teach about war in the same way after my experience. And I, want, I wanted to tell about war from the standpoint not of the generals and the military heroes, but from the standpoint of of the ordinary guys who, who were in the war. Or maybe even to tell us the story of wars from the standpoint of the enemy, of the other side. How does the Mexican war look to the Mexicans? Uh, my first teaching job was at Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia. My first real teaching job. I had a few unreal teaching jobs. <laughs> but Spelman College, Atlanta, Georgia, black women's college. I went down there in 1956 and stayed there. My wife and I and our two little kids lived in the black community around Spelman College. Those were probably the most educational years of my life. Those were the years of the movement. And my students became involved in the movement, and I became involved in the movement. From Atlanta, I went down to Albany, Georgia, and, and to Selma, Alabama, and Hattiesburg, Mississippi, and Greenwood, Mississippi, and Jackson, and other places as I say, learned a lot. One of the things I learned was, was the capacity of, of human beings who seem powerless to create enormous power just by their own acts of getting together, of sacrificing together, of taking risks together, and how against what seem uh, insurmountable odds, things can change by people determining to change them. Because what could be a tougher situation than for black people in Mississippi or Alabama or southwest Georgia to decide to change a deeply embedded set of social relations that had existed in those societies for a long time? And it, it didn't look like it could be done, but it was done. And to see that happen and to see people who were quiet and silent suddenly speak up uh, people who are just going about every day doing their job, apparently, and this is what, remember, they used to say, well, people here are happy with their lives. Look at them. They're just going about their daily work. Well, uh, one thing I learned is not to mistake silence for acceptance, not to think because people aren't doing anything at any particular time that they're not capable of doing something an hour from now. And I could see people, and people, you see people change. My students at Spelman College were the most controlled students. They were taught to be controlled. They were supposed to be controlled. They were the, the daughters of maids and laundresses and porters and sharecroppers. And they were supposed to go to college so they could lift themselves up into the black middle class and, and make something of themselves. The idea was to stick to their work stick to their studies and become successful and don't get into trouble 
and the college was surrounded by a stone wall and barbed wire to make sure that's where you stay, that's where you, what you do. You can have your nice little, this was the kind of unspoken pact between the city fathers of Atlanta and the black colleges of Atlanta, Spelman and Morehouse and Atlanta University. The, and the pact was, you can have your nice Negro colleges, you can even have a few white faculty, we will even let some white people from town come to campus at Christmas time to listen to the Glee Club. But in return, don't interfere with what happens in the city of Atlanta, which at that time was as tightly segregated by race as Johannesburg, South Africa. And yes, there was that wall around the campus, and at a certain point, the students leaped over that wall and went into the city. It had been in them for a long time. It had been in them from the time who knows at what age, or four, or five, or seven, or whatever age it was that they first became conscious that they were looked upon as different by society. Sometimes my students would write to me about the, that first time in their lives when they became conscious of the fact that they belonged to a different group that was looked on in a certain way. And one thing, white society in America has never really been able to encompass, no matter how liberal and tolerant and understanding it is, that has been, never been able to comprehend the depth of feeling, the depth of indignation and anger in people who have that history that black people have had in this country. And so when they behave in, in ways that are incomprehensible to us, like exulting at the, or some of them exulting, some black people exulting at the acquittal of O.J. Tibbs and say, what's wrong with them? Forgetting that the people are never reacting only to the immediate event, people are always reacting to their own lives. What I saw in the movement and what I experienced in the movement at Spelman, and then what I experienced later in the anti-war movement, because I, when I left Spelman, actually I left was a, as a kind of euphemism. <laughs> How shall I put it? Fired. I was fired. We don't like to use that word. Downsized. downsized. I, I was definitely downsized. I used, I used to be 6'6". Six, six. <laughs> and uh, went north and was offered a job at Boston University just in time for the beginning of a big American escalation of the war in Vietnam became involved in the anti-war movement, and then saw some of the same phenomenon in the anti-war movement, that is the, the apparent powerlessness of little groups of people protesting against a war fought by the most powerful military machine in the world, the most powerful nation. And how could these little knots of people, get 100 people gathering on the Boston Common in 1965, and a little group here, and a little group there, and a petition here, and a teaching there, how could do anything to stop a war waged by this enormous power? And yet you saw the movement grow. You saw the movement grow and grow and grow. And the 100 people who met on the Boston Common against the war in 1965 become, in 1969, at another meeting on the Boston Common, 100,000 people. And something that then is reproduced around the country as you know, perhaps 2 million people in October of 1969 uh, meet at various places around the country to protest the war. And, and, and the, the population has turned around. And the administrations, as powerful as they 
are, with all their money and all their military power, must reckon with the most important power of all, the power of people to refuse to do something that they are asked to do, the power of young people to refuse to fight, the power of soldiers who refuse to go out on patrol, the B-52 pilots who after a while refuse to fly a, a, a bomber over Haiphong or Hanoi, the closing of ROTC chapters because they can't get enough people to join them. A, gen a resistance which becomes a resistance of apparently powerless people but becomes wide enough, widespread enough to cause the, the, the people up there to put their heads together and, and to take that, the activities of these powerless people into consideration and to say, as they did at a certain point, uh, we can't go on like this. We must begin to move in the other direction. And finally, of course, with a major factor being the fact unable to win militarily in Vietnam against, again, an apparently puny and powerless revolutionary national movement. But it's instructive to see the, this in the civil rights movement, to see this in the anti-war movement, because it coincided with what I had come to believe in studying history, and, and that is uh, it is possible at various points in history, no matter how inconceivable it is to change the policies of the people who run the country. It is possible for people to, if they are determined enough and organized enough and indignant enough and energetic enough and are willing to take enough risks, it is possible for them to do extraordinary things. And so I believe that's true today. I, I, I'm speaking at a time when there's a lot of discouragement. Uh, most of my friends are depressed. I have begun to think it's a condition of being my friend <laughs> to be depressed. Uh, uh, why are they depressed? Because they, they must believe the media. Uh, the very people who say, I, I don't believe the media, believe the media. <laughs> the very people say, I don't believe the politicians, they all lie, believe the politicians. The politicians in the media tell us that they're in charge or that the Republicans have won a victory, or that they're going to turn the clock back, and that they're going to do this, and, that they, they, and we believe them. Oh, they will try to do that, and they may succeed in doing it for a little while, and they may win some victories, but the fact is that they are working against a very, very powerful impulse in the American public, which has been developed over quite a period of time, and it's a very generous and good impulse, and it's, it's the idea that uh, democracy should be real, that democracy, yes. You're listening to Howard Zinn, A People's History of the United States, part two of a special two-part program celebrating the Zinn centenary. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get copies of this program and the classic Zinn books, A People's History of the United States, and You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. That the wealth of this country should be much more equitably distributed than it is. That people who want to work 
people who want to work should be able to work, and a private enterprise won't give them work, then a government program must give them work. But they must, people should be guaranteed health care and a place to live and all the things that they need uh, to, to live a decent life. And this is a very, very rich country. It's, it, it can do this. It's, it's interesting. You would think from reading the little, well, uh, sorry, we can't afford this. Sorry, we can afford child care. We can't afford to give school lunches to kids. We can't afford to give $500 a month to a mother taking care of two kids. We, we don't have the money for the arts. We have to cut money for music. We just don't have it. This country with this enormous gross national product, truly gross national <laughs> product, you see. Uh, Wealth, uh, which is concentrated in a, in a small portion of the population, which is wasted on the military budget, which goes for all sorts of purposes other than human purposes. And we, we, there's a basis there in those facts and, and the existence, I believe, in most American people, not all American people, but most large numbers of American people of the, the uh, sense of what is just and what is right. And I believe that's the, that's the basis for people beginning to move, people beginning to act, people to get together with other people, not to allow those people who are, who are trying to convince us that they have it all their way. Uh, why? Because they were elected by some small part of the population who voted unenthusiastically for them because they had nobody else to vote for? Uh, uh, people begin to act, people begin to move, people begin to organize in the smallest of ways with the smallest of groups. Well, that's how social movements develop. And if everybody understands that uh, the smallest action, oh, it may not have any effect, but it might join to millions of other small actions, and at a certain point in history, might bring about the kind of changes we want, uh, might uh, actually change policy, might actually boldly change policy, uh, and do something about the horrors of racism and uh, the, the unequal treatment of sexes and the unequal treatment of uh, gay people and the unequal treatment of children, uh, do something about all those things. Because we certainly, we're approaching a new century. We, we don't want to go into this new century repeating the history of the old century. And I, th I think it's possible not to repeat that and to do something new and startling. And not only that, whatever you accomplish, whatever is accomplished, and you never know what you will accomplish, and anybody would be rash, and I would be rash to predict, oh yes, it's certain, great things will happen. Uh, Except that I know that if you don't do anything, I know great things won't happen. If you act, great things might happen. But whether they do or not, in the process, in the course of it, by your action, by not simply living the life of a professional, but having another life, well, it will be more interesting and more fun and more rewarding 
And as I say, whatever is accomplished, you will feel that you have participated in something worthwhile uh, all the time. That's worth doing. Th thank you for coming. Yes. Well, you represent a very strong point of view, which I hear from half of the people who talk to me about my book. Uh, that is, half of the people who talk to me about the people's history say, I feel depressed. <laughs> and the other half say, well, I'm glad you told me about all the people who have fought back about the movements and the struggles and, and people we never heard of. And, uh, I'm, that's, and so it's, now maybe it's not 50-50. I would like to think it's 50-50. Maybe it's 70-30. And, uh, and I'm fooling myself about what I did. It's, it's a tough balance to strike that is to be truthful about uh, the, the terrible things that have happened and the, the number of times that's, that strikers have been mowed down by the police and that strikes have been lost, to strike a balance between that and the uh, magnificent resistance of people, and people coming back and back and back. Uh, the IWW was destroyed by the government in the course of World War I, and their leaders were put on trial, and they were given long sentences, and, and they took this magnificent organization and just uh, eliminated it. And yet in its time, in, in its short life, it did remarkable and inspiring things. It fought for people's rights. It organized workers. It won the textile strike in Lowell at, in 1912 against the power of the textile companies. It defended the rights of free speech of IWW of speakers, labor organizers who went around in towns and were arrested. And, and then IWW people would gather from other states and they would come into those towns and they would speak and they would get arrested. And they would do it again and again and again until the jails were full and overbursting and, and, and until they had to be released from jail. I mean, both things are true. That is, that we can read American history in such a way as to depress us with the, with the, by, and this is the complaint very often of very, it's, uh, it's, it's not the complaint of my friends and not your complaint, but very often the complaint of traditionalists who say, you know, you're telling bad things about the United States, and you know, why don't you tell the good things? But I think it's a real, it's a real challenge to be honest about uh, the power of the establishment, but at the same time to tell uh, those stories which have been left out uh, of the history books. And how you look at an event can be looked upon in, in those two different ways. If, if you read the history of the Civil Rights Movement and you come to that part of the Civil Rights Movement in which uh, a, a part that's not as well known, let's say, as Selma, Alabama, or, or the Montgomery bus boycott, or the big marches in Birmingham. Uh, you come to the movement in Albany, Georgia in 1961-62, uh, the small town, uh, almost a town that, that seemed like it was still in slavery in uh, uh, cotton and peanut country in, uh, in s southwest Georgia. 
But in 1961, the black population of, of Albany, Georgia, rose up, as it had, hadn't done and in anybody's memory, it rose up and, and rebelled against racial segregation in the city of Albany. And before you knew it, 700 people were in jail. 1,000 people were in jail. A, a good part of the black population of Albany, Georgia. And the history of that very often is written as the history is of one of the defeats of the civil rights movement because when, the, when that movement stopped in Albany, Georgia, it seemed that nothing had changed. I never read it that way. And some of the people who participated in that movement didn't read it that way. And a, a black man named Charles Sherrod, who went down to Albany at that time, who worked with SNCC and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and who after everybody left, well, or, that is after people who had gone down there to participate in the movement had left, he stayed and has stayed there all through these years. And he writes about ta that time, and he says, I don't know why you call Albany, Georgia, defeat. Because after Albany, defeat or not, people were never the same. Black people were never the same. White people were never the same. And he pointed to, to all the ways in which Albany, Georgia was different. And, uh, well, you know how it is. You can look, at the, uh, you can look at, the, at the situation of racism in the United States today, and you can be in despair, and the people say, oh, the situation is worse than it ever was. Things have gone backward. Or the women's movement. and and sexual equality, and it's possible. There's enough evidence. This is a great thing about history, right? There's always enough evidence on all sides to paint whatever picture you want, you see. And then you can paint a picture which, which puts people in despair, or you can, or you, or without inventing anything, you can find those episodes and then those moments in history which suggests to you that something else is possible, even if that something else has not yet taken place on a big enough scale. You know, when I think of Albany, Georgia, I think of, of these hundreds and hundreds of black people lined up in front of the desk of, of the chief of police of Albany, Georgia, uh, to be booked. You know, their names, addresses, and at one point the, the chief looks over the top of his desk and there's somebody there and he can just barely see the top of his head and it was a nine-year-old kid being arrested, and the, and the chief said, boy, what's your name? And the little boy replied, freedom, freedom. Those are the kinds of things that, you, that happen a thousand times in different ways in, in every social movement in this country, that the spirit that people have and which, no matter what they do, cannot really be extinguished. I think it's possible to teach kids about people like that. I think it's possible to teach kids about other kids. I think it's possible to teach them about the kids who in the early part of 1903 traveled to Washington, D.C. Kids who worked in the mines were gathered up and organized by Mother Jones who took them to Washington, D.C. to ask Congress to do something about child labor in the mines and elsewhere. And the kids marched around in front of the White House. Theodore Roosevelt was president. Sorry to mention his name. And, but the kids marched around carrying signs saying, we want time to play. I think, I think there are lots of really wonderful and inspiring stories to tell kids about people who have fought back against terrible things in this country. Yes. I just finished a uh, 
where do I get this? My optimism is not based on the on certainty. I'm not arguing about what is certainly going to happen. I'm just arguing about what can happen if we act. You see, that's all I'm saying. And I don't think I don't think a, a succession of ruling classes in history establishes beyond any possibility of negation. I don't think an endless succession history of ruling classes does away with the possibility uh, that we can have a society without a ruling class. And just as I don't think that a history of uh, repeated war and war and war means that we can't abolish war as a way of solving uh, grievances in international affairs. Things do change. They obviously haven't changed enough. But I, I, I believe that what happened with the movement, the civil rights movement of the 60s, changed this country uh, in a way where it can't go back beyond the, it can't go back to an older time. And I believe the women's movement changed consciousness about sexual equality in a very, very important way. And you know, even, though, even if these problems haven't been solved, and we say, well, we, we've had male domination all through history, all through history, all through history, but something has changed. And maybe we need to reconsider our sense of time. That is, maybe we've been too much in a hurry. Maybe we think that we need to do away with elite rule and with class rule and with sexual inequality and racism. We think we need to do it while we live. And maybe we ought to understand that maybe we can't do that, but we can move in that direction. And in the course of that moving in that direction, a lot of people will change and change in, in very good ways and a lot of good things will happen. But I think we have to have a much longer time perspective than a lot of people in social movements have had up to this point. Yes. Well, the early Indian societies of North America, they didn't have much to share. But what they had, they shared. And uh, you read the reports of, of the the Jesuit missionaries who came here and who studied the, the way the uh, indigenous people here lived and, and then wrote these reports. They, 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 there's an amazing amount of documentation of much more closely examined than even modern anthropologists have done with societies. And uh, there's a man named William Brandon who, who went through the archives in, in France to see what the Jesuits wrote back about and you might think, well, he's romanticizing, and it's possible to romanticize ancient civilizations, and some of them were warlike and, and violent and so on. But also there were Indian societies in those times uh, with a remarkable sharing of all the goods and with a remarkable equality between men and women. In fact, a matriarchal society in many of these instances but a society in which the relations between men and women were better than the relations between men and women in modern times. I'm not pointing to these as things we, to which we must return or saying things were ideal then. And I don't even think it's necessary to find, as some people think, you, mu you must find somewhere a place 
where the really good society existed, otherwise we won't believe one is possible. And, and I don't think it's necessary to do that. I think human beings are capable of creating things that were never created before. And I, I refuse to believe that, that only the things that have happened in the human past exhaust the possibilities for the human race. I don't think that's, that's the case. Yes. What would I be saying about labor struggles in the 90s if we were writing at the end of the 90s? Or even writing now, I suppose. Well, she was talking about the fact that her sister is on strike with the strikers of the Detroit Free Press and wonders about the historical recognition of labor struggles that are going on in the 90s. And she also asks about the future and what the election of Sweeney and head of the AFL-CIO means. I know the answers to all these questions. Uh, uh, I mean, wh why do you think I was invited here? But we already have, right, in, in, uh, in this part of the 90s that we've lived, we already have had many labor struggles that have gone on that were unreported in the press, and it could very easily be overlooked in history. I mean, they aren't a great, you know, they aren't like the great you know, San Francisco strike of 34 or the sit-down strikes of 36, 37, but we always have labor struggles going on which only the people involved in them seem to know about because the, the media simply don't report those things. And so most of the people in the country don't even know about the strike at the Detroit Free Press, just as most of the people don't know about the, the, the long strike that's been going on in Decatur, Illinois, which uh, a very bitter, bitter strike. Most people don't know that a few years ago there was a strike of restaurant workers in Minneapolis and uh, the restaurant workers, uh, hotel and restaurant workers union. And the hotel and restaurant workers went on strike against this hotel in Minneapolis. And they were out on the picket line in the winter months and out and out and it didn't seem they were gonna win. Then they, they decided to have a session in which they felt they had to do something more. They called in somebody who, who had been very active in the anti-war movement days in Minneapolis and been active since then, who had engaged in and organized many acts of civil disobedience, and he decided they had to move on to civil disobedience. And, and so he came, uh, this uh, mysterious stranger, uh, came and, and uh, talked to them about uh, civil disobedience and nonviolent action. And, and after that, they organized themselves they went into the lobby of the hotel, they occupied it, they sat down, they refused to move, and they won their strike. And the point is, uh, who ever heard of it? So in order, for, in, in order for the history of the labor struggle in the 90s to be recorded, we have a big job to do. People have to notice what is going on in their locality and spread the word to other localities. And we all have to become, in a way, historians. We all have to become communicators. We have to make up for what the mass media don't do uh, in, in order to, to spread the word, in order to encourage people about the fact that people in other parts of the country are doing things. 
I discovered during the Gulf War, as I went around the country speaking about the Gulf War, that anti-war activities, and you remember the press was reporting 85, 90% of the population supported the Gulf War. And I didn't doubt that it was true in a very superficial way, in the, in the, in the way you get quick responses from people who, you know, when you put a microphone in front of them, are you for the war? Are you for the troops? Are you for the president that you know? Uh, but at the same time, when I went around the country, I found a remarkable opposition to the war in, in pl Texas City, Texas. You know, you mean, here are 400 people gathered in a room in Texas City, Texas, and we talk about the war, and it seems that everybody in that room is against the war? Who, who heard about it anywhere else in the country? Or I just came, I was in Mankato, Minnesota uh, last week, and they were telling me about something I had never heard of, among all the things, and, and I'm presumably a historian of the anti-war movement, uh, at least it, well, what it means I've written about the anti-war movement, and, uh, but they told me about something I never heard of, and that is in, in Mankato, Minnesota. There was a, a, a march against the war, a blocking of the streets. The police force came out and stayed in the side streets and wouldn't come to the blockers and the demonstrators. And when a truck, when, when, a, when a truck driver decided he was going to ram his truck through the people sitting on the street, uh, and he started up his engine. The police surrounded him and took him out of the truck and took him away, and and the the demonstration went on. But the things like that, you know, I discovered when I was in Olympia, Washington, that that during the Gulf War, that thousands of people in, in Olympia, Washington, had marched on the state legislature and occupied the state legislature. It was not reported anywhere else in the country. Uh, and I guess when I'm well, you know what I'm saying about the, the, uh, whatever, the, whatever the labor movement does do, it is important that the word get out about, about what is done. We need to wrap up. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, we'll take one more. Okay. It's, uh, it's called civil disobedience. Yes. Do I charge... I'm like, I'm, I'm like the doctor that my family used to go to who would charge people who had money more and people who didn't have money less. So uh, I, 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 uh, I, I, go to, I go to places where I don't get anything. <laughs> but I shouldn't say that. Don't, don't spread that word around. Uh, anyway, th thank you for coming. You were just listening to Howard Zinn, A People's History of the United States, part two of a special two-part program celebrating the Zinn Centenary. He spoke at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. Howard Zinn, Professor Emeritus at Boston University, was perhaps this country's premier radical historian. He's the author of A People's History of the United States and You Can't Be Neutral on a Moving Train.
Howard Zinn passed away in 2010. His work continues to inform and inspire. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. We are supported solely by individuals just like you. We have a series of programs featuring Howard Zinn. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To order copies of today's program, Howard Zinn, A People's History of the United States, Parts 1 and 2, and for his classic books, A People's History of the United States, and you can't be neutral on a moving train, just call us 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, that's alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us. 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with a special composition, a remix by Joel Tarman, performed by the Kronos Quartet on the occasion of the Zinn Centenary. of the government are not given to self-reflection or to self-criticism. Uh, no, if you criticize the United States government, you're met with the exhortation, well, why don't you go somewhere else? <laughs> why, why, well, sometimes they say, why don't you go back to where you came from, you know, which might be Brooklyn. Well, this, this notion of uh, superiority and exceptionalism starts early. Well, here in Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1630, the colony had just begun, and, and the governor, uh, Winthrop, uh, talked about uh, the Massachusetts Bay Colony uh, as uh, a city on a hill. I think Reagan embellished it a little and talked about a golden city on a hill. Well, the idea of a city on a hill, you've probably heard that expression a number of times, the idea of a city on a hill uh, is, a, is a nice one because it suggests a, a model. It suggests setting an example. I mean, that is a wonderful thing to be. But it doesn't stop there with just being a city on a hill. After uh, Governor Winthrop utters these words, about being a city on a hill. Just a few years later, the people in the city on a hill move out to massacre the Peacock Indians.
association between what the government does and what God approves of. That process of not being just a city on a hill, but of moving out, of expanding, that's a, a persistent fact of American history, going all the way back to those first settlers and coming down to the present day. 